Turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 1, if you would. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have a brand new one uh, that you can collect on your way out this morning. Uh, This is week three in our study through the book of Romans, the the so-called greatest letter ever written. And it is, it's been called the Mount Everest of sacred literature. It's also, we might as well admit, uh, one of the most countercultural letters ever written written by the Apostle Paul around uh, 57 AD, uh, actually dictated by the Apostle Paul. It was actually written down by a guy by the name of Tertius. We'll hear more about him much later on. But we have to say, you know, handwritten by Tertius, dictated by the Apostle Paul, this is actually a letter written by God himself. When we look at the scriptures, we get to hear from God himself. And so that's what we're going to do. Excited to continue uh, in this study this morning. Um, Are you a... Good news first or a bad news first type of person? In other words, if someone says to you, hey, I've got good news and I got bad news, what do you want to hear first? How do you typically reply? I asked my 17-year-old daughter, she popped in my office this morning, and I said, are you a good news first or a bad news first type of person? She said, oh, good news, definitely. Give me the good news first. I'm personally, I want to hear the bad news first. You may remember... uh, that classic line uh, in the first Godfather movie, and this is not an endorsement, by the way, but uh, where, uh, uh, where the Godfather's uh, conciliary comes to him and, or is talking to someone else, and he says, Mr. Corleone insists on hearing bad news immediately. So good news can wait, but bad news must come immediately. Uh, we're in the book of Romans. We're working our way through it section by section, and what we're going to see is there's a rhythm to this. It's good news, bad news, good news. Really good news, really bad news, and then really good news. Now you say, well, why even focus on the bad news? Well, unless we understand the bad news, we'll never really understand just how incredible the good news is. So this morning, we're going to look at some hard stuff, uh, and this is going to continue for a few weeks, but it is not without uh, good news. The Apostle Paul recognized that It's only good news, it's only perceived and understood as good news if we understand the bad news, and that is salvation, we must be saved from something. We are saved from something. Salvation only means something if we know that we need to be saved and what exactly we are saved from. Every person who has not repented and believed in Jesus is actually in great peril in great unmitigated danger, the worst sort of danger imaginable. And that's what we're going to see this morning from the text. So Romans 1, we're going to cover verses 18 through 23. Here reads the word of the Lord. I'm going to read the whole section because it really needs to be understood uh, in its entirety. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man 
and birds and animals and creeping things. So in explaining this passage, I, I think we have to start with the opening phrase, and that is the wrath of God. Uh, namely, the notion that God actually displays wrath, or to say it differently, God gets very, very angry. Now, I say we have to start with that because I think there is a fairly pervasive notion in our culture where you know God would never get mad. In fact, someone said that to me about three weeks ago. They said, God can't get angry. There is this idea that God is this sort of snuggly, you know, uh, loving and gentle and, and cuddle, you know, cuddleable, if that's a word, a grandpa, where it's just, you know, and I can say it because I'm a grandpa. And it's like God would never get mad about anything. All God wants is for just to be loved and accepted. He just wants to be invited in. And he would never condemn anyone. He would never say that anything that anybody does is wrong. There is this notion about God that God would never get angry. But that's not the God of the Bible, is it? The God of the Bible actually gets angry. If you're reading through the Bible this year using the Seeing Jesus Together plan, which I know many of us are, um, about a month or so ago, you came across the story of Naboth and his vineyard, 1 Kings 21. Uh, here, Naboth is this commoner, and he has this piece of land that the king of Samaria, King Ahab, wanted for himself. And so King Ahab said, no, I, I want your land because it's close to my palace. I'm going to turn it into a, a beautiful garden. But this is almost all Naboth had. So Naboth had the uh, temerity to actually deny the king's request, and he said, no, you, you can't have my land. Well, uh, Jezebel... King Ahab's wife, who was the most wicked woman in the land, said to her husband, the king, as he was pouting, are you the king of Israel or not? Don't worry, you'll get your garden. And she had Naboth killed. And Ahab immediately went down and claimed the garden. But listen to what the Lord said in response. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut, and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel for the anger to which you have provoked me, the Lord said. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. God's not pretending here. He's not putting on a front. God is actually angry. Now, in saying that, of course, we have to say God's anger is not like our anger. When we get angry, we, we, we fly off the handle, we lose our temper, we react to something we couldn't control. Uh, not so with God. God is the sovereign initiator and instigator of all his own emotions. In other words, human beings cannot force God to feel a certain way. That would give humans power over God. Even though God does experience emotions, his affections are ultimately active rather than passive. So he never flies off the handle, never sort of loses his cool, so to speak, never loses control. His anger is righteous and pure and holy and always completely without sin. But we can't deny the fact that God actually, really displays wrath. His wrath is the holy, his holy revulsion against everything that contradicts his perfect and holy character. But who's God angry with in this passage? Is it the Gentiles only, as some argue? Is it the Jews? Is it 
practicing homosexuals? Is it idol worshipers? Well, what does the text say? Look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in the same way, verse 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, the good news of God's gracious salvation in Christ, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, these two terms are important, ungodliness and unrighteousness. They're fairly broad and inclusive terms. Here's what I mean by that. Ungodliness refers to spiritual rebellion, that is to say idolatry, which we'll get into in a little bit. Worshiping things created by man. Now, it's not just worshiping physical things. It's also the idolatry of the heart that angers God. And unrighteousness. The word unrighteousness refers to a a rebellion of a moral kind. So any kind of immoral act, thought, behavior, or motive. Again, these are broad and inclusive terms. New Testament scholar Frank Thielman writes, the adjective all applies to both vices, and hence that Paul intended them to cover in a sweeping way all human sin. So it's fair to say that Romans 1, 20 through 32 is directed primarily toward Gentiles, and Romans 2, 1 through 3, 8 is directed primarily toward Jews, But verse 18 is an indictment against all mankind outside of Jesus Christ. When we talk about God's wrath against all sinners, no one is excluded. No one escapes God's wrath. Here's our first point. All people, apart from Jesus, are implicated in acts and attitudes that elicit God's wrath, which is a demonstration of His righteousness. Last week I mentioned that the thing about salvation is the whole idea presupposes danger. If you were to say to someone, hey, I got saved last night, I got saved last week, their natural response understandably would be, saved from what? I didn't know you were in trouble, I didn't know you were in danger. So we talked about how all that that works last week. Um, Only those people in some sort of peril need to be saved. The Bible talks a lot about salvation and our need for it, but what do we need to be saved from? Here's the answer. The wrath of God. We are accustomed to hearing that everybody's a good person. Everybody's a good person at heart. It's just we just have to tap down deep inside to find that inner goodness. Well, that's not true, though. The reality is we enter into this world in defiance against God. We don't want to be controlled. We don't want to be under anyone's authority. We don't want to be told what to do. We insist on, yea, we demand our autonomy. Now, it doesn't mean that non-Christians never do anything good. They never help anybody out. They never contribute to society. Of course not. It doesn't mean that Those outside of Christ just sit around plotting and scheming, uh, trying to devise up the most evil plan they can think of? Of course not. It just means that those outside of Christ have a natural revulsion to God's authority. What's fascinating to me is I've said this, I don't know how many times in 22 years, but I have people who balk at this idea, who really, really are upset by the idea that outside of Christ, everybody is against God. And yet those same people who say that say, I have no problem with God. 
They're not making any effort to obey God's commands, especially the hard ones. They may not have a problem with the idea of God, but they have a real problem with a living God who wields ultimate, absolute authority and who says, do this and don't do that. We all enter the world as rebels against God, enemies of God by nature. We enter the world with a sin problem. As a result of our defiance, we find ourselves under the righteous wrath of God. Now, if you grew up in a fundamentalist tradition or perhaps in many Baptist churches, you've probably heard this chapter, Romans 1, preached and read you know, mainly to condemn homosexual sin. And to be sure, this chapter does condemn homosexual sin. We'll get to that next week. But this chapter is not primarily addressed to homosexuals. This is an indictment of all humanity apart from Jesus Christ. Everyone who's not been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ is currently under the wrath of God. And that wrath, verse 18, is being revealed, present tense. In other words, God's wrath is not something just to fear on the last day or the day of judgment. God is actually revealing his wrath, pouring out his wrath right now. You say, well, what does that look like? I mean, how does that actually manifest? How do people outside of Jesus experience God's wrath? Well, as we're going to see next week, God's wrath is poured out in part as God allows people to experience the full and devastating consequences of their rebellion against him. God actually allows them, there's this Greek word paradidomy, hand, hand it over, gave, gave them over. One of the ways that God demonstrates his wrath is by allowing those who outside of Christ to experience the full and devastating consequences of ignoring his goodness, his wisdom, his authority. Now you might ask, well, why would God get so angry? I mean, after all, the problem is, is people don't obey him because they probably don't even know about him. Well, Paul answers that objection in verses 19 and 20. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, for, his, uh, for God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The phrase that Paul uses to start this section is, is actually very, very interesting and very telling. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. By saying what can be known about God, Paul's saying there's a limitation to what we can know about God. In other words, human beings cannot know everything about God. We might bristle at the idea of God's wrath. We might think well, that God ought to be a certain way. We might even think, well, I insist that God is a certain way. But the truth is God is beyond our figuring out. He is the creator. We are the created. And as such, he is existentially, ontologically, morally, ethically, and emotionally different than we are. He has us in his hands. We never have God in our hands. We are limited in every way. He is limitless. We get tired. We wear out, but not so with God. We are fickle and moody and at times capricious, but God never, ever changes. Now, maybe you're thinking, 
You say God never changes, but you just said that he gets angry. Wouldn't that represent a change in him? Theologian Robert Raymond explains it beautifully when he says, God always acts the same way toward moral evil and the same way toward moral good. In his every reaction to men's responses to him, the immutable moral fixity of his character is evident. In other words, God never changes. His character never changes. And yet he still responds to the evil in the world. He is complete in himself. He depends on no one. He never loses strength. He never sleeps. He's never tired. He's not bound by the constraints of time, space, space, or the laws of nature. He is with us in our presence right now. He is everywhere. And at the same time, he is high and lifted up. He is unlike us. And we can only know about God what he has revealed about himself to us, that and no more. But he has revealed himself to us. Not to the extent that we can completely figure him out or we can relegate God to sort of an outline in a book. But he has revealed, verse 20, his invisible attributes, which Paul goes on to explain, as his eternal power and divine nature. Now, these two phrases also are not meant to be exhaustive or strictly limited. To the contrary, these two phrases are more like summaries of the invisible perfections that characterize God. So we might say it this way. This is our second point. The eternal existence, unlimited power, and divine nature of God are all clearly revealed through the created world. Now, I say clearly revealed because Paul doesn't suggest that only people of a certain intellect can see God, can be aware of his presence. Paul doesn't suggest that people that only have sort of the most acute uh, reasoning skills, people who are are the greatest logicians, they understand logic. No, Paul says clearly seen. You don't have to be of a certain type of person to see uh, that God is alive, He exists, and His majesty and glory is all over the world. When a person hears the sound of rushing water, the power of a river, or sees the layers of a beautiful sunset, and Alabama has some pretty amazing sunsets, or feels the crashing waves of the ocean, or hears the boom of thunder, or gazes upon the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, which, as I mentioned, where one of our own families is now, or hides under the shadow of a natural cave. When a person sees the power of fire and the way it spreads and consumes everything in its path, I've got a great illustration of this I'm going to use in a couple weeks. But any of those things, any of those sights, is enough to spur anyone to think how much more powerful is the one who created these elements than the elements themselves. Even the laws of nature, even the design of creation reveals the glory of God. This created world is the stage on which God's glory is unmistakably revealed. We could even say that nature screams out the presence and existence of power of God in a way that cannot be ignored or denied. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. 
commenting on Romans chapter 1, the Baptist theologian Thomas Schreiner writes, to understand that Paul does not refer to a long process of reasoning by which people come to a knowledge of God's existence and power is critical. God has stitched into the fabric of human mind his existence and his power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views the created world. So what about those people who say they don't believe in God? What about those people who say, no, I, I don't buy it? What do we, how do we make sense of that? When I first started as a pastoral intern in the summer of June, June 2000, one of the goals was to figure out what I was good at and what I was not good at. And there were a lot of things I was not good at. In fact, I was so bad at hospital visits early on that you know, it was kind of a joke when I would go see somebody in the hospital, they would just say, Jesus, take me. Just take me, <laughs> rather than deal with this guy for half an hour. Uh, I was really bad at that. By God's grace, I've grown a little bit. Um, but I also found out I was really bad at, terrible at, and that is event planning. So I was given, this summer, I was given uh, the, the, the annual church picnic to oversee as an intern. I was horrible at it. I was terrible at it. Uh, in fact, about two days before the picnic was supposed to take place, uh, somebody asked me, say, hey, how are things going? I said, I think they're going pretty well. They said, well, um, you know, where, where are people going to sit? I'm like, oh, you know, I, I never really thought about that. I mean, I guess they can sit wherever they want, right? They said, well, what are people going to drink? I realized that just how badly I dropped the ball. I said, well, people don't get thirsty at picnics. They don't need, don't need anything to drink. Uh, what's going to be the program? Like, program? Why would you need a program at a picnic? Just totally botched it. Um, and I learned other things I was bad at. One of the things that I, one of the skills that I learned that I had, which is a pretty odd and useless skill, uh, but I, it was learned that if I was good at coming up with phrases or titles, and so if there's going to be a new ministry, you know, the senior pastor said, hey, no, give that to John and let him come up with a cool title for it. And he actually, then he would come to me, he would, with his sermons, he would say, this is the text I'm on, give me a cool title for it. And I can't promise that they were all that cool, but that was something that was perceived to be a gift to me. I say all that, that's a long lead in to say this. I couldn't think of a good title for Romans because there's just so much in the book. But I have to tell you, I do absolutely love the title of this sermon. Atheists aren't real. That's the title I gave it. You're obviously not as enamored as I was when I wrote it down. But here's the thing. Is there such a thing as an atheist? Can a person legitimately say, I don't believe in God? Well, Paul says that it's so clear, the evidence of God's uh, existence and power and so on is so clear that we might as well say atheists aren't real. Now, I, the way I said it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I do think it's a true statement. Paul says all people possess the knowledge of God. There's no one who doesn't really believe in the existence of God. Now, Paul says the knowledge of God can be suppressed or repressed, right? In other words, sin is always an assault on the truth, namely the truth about God. And a person can certainly push down the truth so deeply that he or she begins to believe their own lie. But the evidence of God in nature is so overwhelming, so undeniable, that those who claim to disbelieve in God, they're actually trying to persuade themselves rather than us. And as a result of this overwhelming evidence, all people are without excuse for their rebellion against God and their refusal to honor Him as God. 
In other words, ignorance is no excuse because all of creation is screaming, telling of the existence of God in a language that can be heard and recognized. Now, as far as some practical application, I think a couple of things came to mind. I mean, maybe for some of us, we need to kind of open our eyes more figuratively speaking. And what I mean by that is to pay more attention, more careful attention to the speech of creation, to find greater comfort in the presence and the reality of God with us. Maybe that's one application, but I think there's a more difficult application here that I would be remiss if I didn't mention. And that is, as we talk about some of these very difficult moral, ethical, and and even theological issues over the upcoming weeks. So, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about human sexuality, homosexuality, gender. We're going to talk about obedience to government, a whole bunch of things. And as we talk about those very, very controversial things, which I know are unpopular and certainly offensive, I think one application of what we just read is we have to keep coming back to this. There is a God, and we're not Him. There is a God, and we're not Him. Frankly, some of the convictions that we believe as Christians, some of the things that the Bible teach, we're going to realize, may make us the laughing stock of our neighborhood. You know, believing these things may make you the laughing stock of your friend group. But the thing is, we don't have to argue. The question really to those who think our views are so ridiculous is, do you believe in God? And if so, shouldn't God be the one who determines what's right and wrong? Shouldn't the Creator be the one who determines what's right and wrong for his creation and not vice versa? In the next section, Paul will disclose the root sin that dominates human beings and unleashes God's wrath. Look at verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. For although they knew God, Paul says. Paul's not saying here that they knew God in a saving sense. But they knew of God's eternal existence, unlimited power, divine nature, because it was right in front of them in all of creation. But even so, they did not honor Him as God, which is another, another way of saying they did not glorify God. They did not glorify God, though the evidence of his existence was all around them. Here Paul speaks to the purpose of our whole lives. You ever wondered, why am I here? What am I here for? You ever asked the question, what's the point? Here's the answer. You were made by God, created by God to display his glory and extend his fame. That's why you're here. That's why you're here on this earth, to display God's glory and extend his fame. That provides the reason, the motivation, the impetus for everything we do as individuals, everything we do as a church, it is to glorify God. Now, we bring God glory in a variety of ways. We won't get into all those this morning, but perhaps the best way to understand it is whenever by our words, actions, or motives, We acknowledge and accentuate God's perfect, beautiful character, 
His attributes, His knowledge, His holiness, His mercy, His power, His love, His grace, and our dependence thereupon, we glorify God, which God delights in. It can even be mundane stuff. It can be enjoying a meal with gratitude to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that actually brings God glory. When we work hard at our jobs, utilizing our creativity as those who are made in the image of God, we glorify God. So it's not just spiritual things. It's not just praying and singing songs and listening to sermons. We glorify God when we do a lot of things. And I think that realization that we're here to glorify God certainly changes the way that we view our lives. It changes the way that we view everything. It changes the way we see marriage. We see marriage differently, not just then as a way to first get our needs met or to find happiness or whatever it is, but as a way to display God's glory as we love one another sacrificially, as husbands lead humbly, as wives submit joyfully, we then, as a married couple, display God's glory and His relationship with His church. We see parenting differently, not just as a responsibility to raise up kids who are decent people and contribute to society, but as those who themselves would declare and extend God's glory. Through their creativity, through their vocation, through what they do, through their relationships, We see our own vocation. That is to say, what we do as a living, we see it very differently. We understand God's glory is the ultimate goal. When we do our jobs well, using our God-given creativity, initiative, and ideas, we're actually glorifying God because we are imaging the creative God who made us. So again, it changes everything when we see that our purpose in life is to glorify God. And there's there's a wonderful, beautiful mystery about this this equation, when we conform to God's divine purpose, when we live out our lives in the way that God has designed and commanded us to do so, we actually find joy. We find meaning. We find healing and peace and purpose. We become joyful and grateful people. But Paul says those who are outside of Christ, they do not seek to glorify God. Then he says something pretty incredible when we consider the whole text of Romans chapter 1. Neither did they give thanks. Who would have ever thought, who would have ever dreamed that a defining mark of the Christian, one by which you know, we can determine in you know, some small measure whether we know Christ or not, is actually gratitude. Who would have ever thought that gratitude is a distinguishing mark of a Christian and a distinguishing mark of a non-Christian, a person who is outside of Christ, is ingratitude. Now, of course, you know, this doesn't mean that Christians are always grateful, happy, you know, people praising God. No, we we struggle with ingratitude, of course. I struggle at times to be thankful. We have ups and downs. You know, we have highs and lows. We, we, We pout, and at times we're ungrateful. But the point is, if your regular disposition is one of demanding and entitlement and disappointment, and you're unable to see that everything you have is from God, a good gift from God, then you may not be alive in Christ. Again, I'm not saying if you're ever unhappy, if you're ever ungrateful. Of course not. As I said, we all have bouts of ingratitude. We all struggle with this. 
But if your ongoing, settled, fixed disposition is one of ingratitude, I mean, that's a very dangerous place to be. Now, that's a lot of bad news, I understand. Um, and full disclosure, the bad news continues through chapter 3 and verse 20. So in capshaw timing, that's still a few weeks out. But if you were here last week, you may remember that I said the Apostle Paul is pulling on a long string here. This is all part of a long kind of run-on thought that Paul began in, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, with Paul talking about the righteousness of God that is from faith for faith. So even though, even though we've looked at some really bad news here, God's anger, our own evil, our own sinfulness, the spiraling nature of sin, we don't want to forget that all of this is a reminder of what Christians have been saved from. In other words, this is not bad news. It's meant to scare us if we're in Christ. If you're in Christ, if Christianity is, if, if, if you are a true believer, you put your faith in Christ, then this has no, you shouldn't be scared by this. But if you're not in Christ, if Christianity is just a game you're playing, just something you put on on Sundays, if God's glory is not your desire, if you've never really turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus, then what we've just read should terrify you, unlike anything else. But again, for the Christian, those who put their faith in Jesus, you have been justified by faith in Christ. You've not done enough. I've not done enough. But Jesus did enough for us, living a completely obedient life and dying for your rebellion and mine. Here's our third point this morning, our final point. The one who trusts in Jesus has been spared from the wrath of God and enjoys God's unwavering acceptance both now and for eternity. As we talked about last week, the beginning of this long section, if you're a Christian, God sees you as righteous. You have been justified. And, and so often when preachers talk about justification, uh, which is, of course, one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. It's very one-sided in the way they talk about it. They say, if you trust in Christ, you've been forgiven of all your sin. Your debt has been paid. That's absolutely true. Praise God for that. But that's just one side of it. Not only, if, you're, if we're just forgiven, then we're left in a neutral position. But justification is not just about being forgiven. We are also given the righteousness of Christ. We're actually made perfect. So we're not neutral. We're actually declared perfect by the living God. If you're in Christ this morning, you have been justified. You have been granted the righteousness of Jesus himself, adopted into God's family, forever spared from the wrath of God. Never, ever to fear it again. It's kind of like, I'm thinking about how to illustrate this, and this is for sure an imperfect one, but it's kind of like going to the doctor and getting a scan and being shown on the x-ray a massive tumor that's inside your body. Now that has to be terrifying. Some of you have been through it, and, and you know, it has to be just absolutely, unbelievably scary. You're sitting there and you see the x-ray. There's a massive tumor in your body. But it's another thing. It's a very different thing if you go to the doctor a couple of weeks after an operation and the doctor says, here's the tumor that was inside your body 
and he or she brings it to you, and it's in a glass of formaldehyde, a big jar, and there's your tumor. I don't know if I have to ask my wife or Paul or something. I don't know if doctors ever do that, but just imagine the difference. In one sense, you're seeing, you're seeing an x-ray of a massive tumor in your body, and the other one, the doctor says, here's the tumor. We, we got all of it. It's all gone. It's never going to haunt you again. It's gone. Well, when you go to your appointment and the doctor brings out the tumor in a jar, what do you feel? It's not fear. It's gratitude. You are very thankful for your doctor for excising this diseased mass from your body. You may even tell your doctor that you love him or her. That may be the level of gratitude you have. For the Christian, this section of very, very bad news is meant to lead us to gratitude because it shows us very clearly what we've been saved from. You say, well, why even talk about the bad stuff? Well, again, we need to know how great of a rescue we've experienced. We need to know how great the wrath is that we've been spared from. We need to know the glorious forgiveness, acquittal, and declaration of righteousness that is ours in Christ. Because that realization leads to joy, peace, a burning desire to please and to glorify and to worship God. If you put your faith in Jesus this morning, you can know for certain that God will never, ever hold your sin against you. Not even one. You will never be condemned for it. Why? Because Jesus was condemned for it. You will never suffer the wrath of God for your sin. Why? Because Jesus suffered the wrath of God in your place. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to worry about wrath. You don't have to worry about how you stand before God or what he thinks about you. God is always and forever for you in Christ Jesus. And that will never change. It is a wondrous mystery to be sure. One that we're going to sing about in just a moment. But nothing in all of the world could be more true. Let's pray.